0: Section 16 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Lovers This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Tatiana Cicilla. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Lovers by Albert Hubbard. Dante Gabriel Rossetti and Elizabeth Eleanor Siddle, Part 2. The other members of the Brotherhood respected this very frank devotion and did not enter into competition with it, as they surely would have done had it been merely admiration. They did not even make gentle fun of it—it was too serious a matter with Rossetti. It was to him a religion, and was to remain so to the day of his death. Within a week after their meeting, the House of Life began to find form. He wrote to her and for her, and always and forever she was his model. The color of her hair got into his brush, and her features were enshrined in his heart. He called her Guggums, or Gugg. "'Occasionally he showed impatience, if anyone by even the lifting of an eyebrow seemed to doubt the divinity of the Guggums. "'There was no time for ardent wooing on his part, no vacillation nor coyness on hers. "'He loved her with an absorbing passion, loved her for her wonderful physical beauty, "'and what she may have lacked in mind he was able to make good. "'And she accepted his love as if it were her due, and as if it had always been hers. "'She was not agitated under the burning impetus. "'No, she just calmly and placidly accepted it as a matter of course.' It will hardly do to say that she was indifferent, but Byrne-Jones was led by Miss Siddle's beautiful calm to say, Love is never mutual. One loves, and the other consents to be loved. The family of Rossetti, his mother and sisters, must have known how much of the ideal was in his passion. Mentally, Miss Siddle was not on their plane, but the joy of Dante Gabriel was their joy, and so they never opposed the inevitable. He, however, acknowledged Christina's mental superiority by somewhat imperiously demanding that Christina should converse with Miss Siddle on great themes. Reskin has added his endorsement to Miss Siddle's worth by calling her a glorious creature. Dante Gabriel's own descriptions of Elizabeth Eleanor are too much retouched to be accurate, but William Rossetti, who viewed her with a critical eye, describes her as tall, finely formed, with lofty neck, regular yet uncommon features, greenish-blue unsparkling eyes, large, perfect eyelids, brilliant complexion, and a lavish wealth of dark, molten gold hair. In the Diary of Maddox Brown, for October 6, 1854, is this. Called on Dante Rossetti, saw Miss Siddle, looking thinner and more death-like, and more beautiful and more ragged than ever, a real artist, a woman without parallel for many a long year. Gabriel, as usual, diffuse and inconsequent in his work, drawing wonderful and lovely guggums one after another, each one a fresh charm, each one stamped with immortality, and his picture never advancing. However, he is at the wall, and I am to get him a white calf and a cart to paint here. Would he but study the golden one a little more? Poor Gabriello. In Elizabeth Eleanor's manner there was a morbid languor and dreaminess, put on, some said, for her lover like a Greek gown, and surely encouraged by him and pictured in his dante creations. Always and forever for him she was the Beata Beatrix. His days were consumed in writing poems to her or painting her, and if they were separated for a single day he wrote her a letter and demanded that she should write one in return, to which we once hear of her gently demurring. She, however, took lessons in drawing, and often while posing would work with her pencil and paper. Ruskin was so pleased with her work that he offered to buy everything she did, and finally a bargain was struck and he paid her £100 a year and took everything she drew. Possibly this does not so much prove the worth of her work as the generosity of Ruskin. The dressmaker's shop had been able to get along without its lovely model, and art had been the gainer. At one time, a slight cloud appeared on the horizon. Another find had been located. Rossetti saw her at the theater, ascertained her name, and called on her the next day and asked for sittings. Her name was Miss Burden. She was very much like Miss Siddle, only her face was pale and her hair wavy and black. She was statuesque, picturesque, of good family, and had a wondrous poise. Rossetti straightway sent for William Morris to come and admire her. William Morris came and married her in what Rossetti resentfully called an unbecoming and insufficiently short space of time. For some months, there was a marked coldness between Morris and Rossetti, but if Miss Siddle was ever disturbed by the advent of Miss Burden, we do not know it. Whistler has said that it was Mrs. Morris who gave immortality to the pre-Raphaelites by supplying them stained-glass attitudes. She posed as St. Michael, Gabriel, and St. John the Beloved, and did service for the types that required a little more sturdiness than Miss Siddle could supply. The Burne jones dream women are very largely composite studies of Miss Siddle and Mrs. Morris. As for Rossetti, he painted their portraits before he saw them, and loved them on sight because they looked like his ideal. After Dante Gabriel and Elizabeth Eleanor had been engaged for more than five years, that is, in the year 1855, Maddox Brown asked Rossetti this very obvious question, why do you not marry her? One reason was that Rossetti was afraid if he married her he would lose her. He doted on her, fed on her, still wrote sonnets just for her, and counted the hours when they parted until he could see her again. Miss Siddle was not quite firm enough in moral and mental fiber to cut her own career. She deferred constantly to her lover, adopted his likes and dislikes, and went partners with him even in his prejudices. They dwelt in Bohemia, which is a good place to camp, but a very poor place in which to settle down. The precarious ways of Bohemia do not make for length of days. Miss Siddle seemed to fall into a decline, her spirits lost their buoyancy, And she grew nervous when required to pose for several hours at a time. Rossetti scraped together all his funds and sent her on a trip alone through France. She fell sick there, and we hear of Rossetti working like mad on a canvas so as to sell the picture and send her money. When she returned, a good deal of her old-time beauty seemed to have vanished. The fine disdain, that noble touch of scorn, was gone, and Rossetti wrote a sonnet declaring her more beautiful than ever. Ruskin thought he saw the hectic flush of death upon her cheek. Sorrow, love, ill-health, poverty tamed her spirit, and Swinburne, telling of her, years after, speaks of her matchless, loveliness, courage, endurance, humor, and sweetness, too dear and sacred to be profaned by any attempt at expression. Rossetti, writing to Allingham, says, It seems to me when I look at her working, or too ill to work, and think of how many, without one tithe of her genius or greatness of spirit, have granted them abundant health and opportunity to labor through the little they can or will do, perhaps her soul is never to bloom, nor her bright hair to fade, but after hardly escaping from degradation and corruption, all she might have been must sink again unprofitably into that dark house where she was born. How truly, she may say, no man cared for my soul. I do not mean to make myself an exception, for how long have I known her and not thought of this till so late, perhaps too late. In Rossetti's love for this beautiful human lily there was something very selfish, the selfishness of the artist who sacrifices everything and everybody, even himself, to get the work done. Rossetti's love for Miss Siddle was sincere in its insincerity. The art impulse was supreme in him, and love was secondary. The nine years' engagement with the uncertain, vacillating, forgetful, absent-minded habits of erratic genius to deal with wore out the life of this beautiful creature. The mother instinct in her had been denied, nature had been set at naught, and art enthroned. When the physician told Rossetti that the lovely lily was to fade and die, he straightway abruptly married her, swearing he would nurse her back to life. He then gave her the home they had so long talked of, three little rooms, one all hung with her own drawings, and none other. He petted her, invited in the folks she liked best, gave little entertainments, and both declared that never were they so happy. She suffered from much neuralgia, and the laudanum taken to relieve the pain had grown into a necessity. On the 10th of February, 1862, She dined with her husband and Mr. Swinburne at a nearby hotel. Rossetti then accompanied her to their home, and leaving her there, went alone to give his weekly lecture at the working men's college. When he returned in two hours, he found her unconscious from an overdose of laudanum. She never regained consciousness, breathing her last but a few short hours later. The grief of Rossetti on the death of his wife was pitiable. His friends feared for his sanity, and had he not been closely watched, it is quite possible that one grave would have held the lovers. He reproached himself for neglecting her. He cursed art and literature for having seduced him away from her, and thus allowed her to grope her way alone. He prophesied what she might have been had he only devoted himself to her as a teacher, and by encouragement allowed her soul to bloom and blossom. "'I should have worked through her hand and brain!' he cried. He gathered all the poems he had written to her, including the House of Life, and tying them up with one of the ribbons she had worn, placed the precious package by stealth in her coffin, close to the cold heart that had forever stopped pulsing. And so the poems were buried with the woman who had inspired them. Was it vanity that prompted Rossetti after seven years to have the body exhumed and recover the poems that they might be given to the world? I do not think so, else all men who print the things they write are inspired by vanity. Rossetti was simply unfortunate in being placed before the public in a moment of spiritual undress. Everybody is ridiculous and preposterous every day, only the public does not see it, and therefore the acts are not ridiculous and preposterous. The conduct of the lovers is always absurd to the onlooker, but the onlooker has no business to look on. He is a false note in a beautiful symphony and should be eliminated. Rossetti, in the transport of his grief, filled with bitter regret and with a welling heart for one who had done so much for him, gave into her keeping, as if she were just going on a journey, the finest of his possessions. It was no sacrifice. The poems were hers. At such a time, do you think a man is revolving in his mind business arrangements with Barabbas? The years passed and rossetti again began to write for god is good the grief that can express itself is well diluted in fact grief often is a beneficent stimulus of the ganglionic cells the sorrow that is dumb before men and which if it ever cries aloud seeks first the sanctity of solitude is the only sorrow to which christ in pity turns his eye or lends his ear the paroxysms of grief had given way to calm reflection the river of his love was just as deep but the current was not so turbulent expression came bringing balm and myrrh, and so on the advice of his friends, endorsed by his own promptings, the grave was opened and the package of poems received. It was an act that does not bear the close scrutiny of the unknowing mob, and I do not wonder at the fierce hate that sprang up at the breast of Rossetti when hounding Penny a liner in London sought to picture the stealthy, ghoul-like digging in the grave at midnight, and the recovery of what he called a literary bauble, as if the man's vanity had gotten the better of his love, or as if he had changed his mind. Men who know, know that Rossetti had not changed his mind. He had only changed his mood. The suggestion that gentlemen poets about to deposit poems in the coffins of their lady lovers should have copies of the originals carefully made before so doing was scandalous. However, when this was followed up with the idea that Rossetti should, after exhuming the poems, have copies made and place these back in the coffin, and that the performance of midnight digging was nothing less than petite larceny from a dead woman, witnessed by the blessed damoiselle leaning over the bar of heaven, In all this we get an offense in literature, and a good taste which in Kentucky or Arizona would surely have cost the penny-a-liner his life. If these poems had not been recovered, the world would have lost The House of Life, a sonnet series second not even to the sonnets from the Portuguese and the immortal sonnets of Shakespeare. The way Rossetti kept the clothing and all the little nothings that had once belonged to his life revealed the depths of love, or the foolishness of it depending upon your point of view. Mrs. Milace tells of calling at Rossetti's house in Chain Walk in 1870, nearly ten years after the death of Elizabeth Eleanor, and having occasion to hang her wraps in a wardrobe, perceived the dresses that had once belonged to Mrs. Rossetti hanging there on the same hooks with Rossetti's raiment. Rossetti made apology for the seeming confusion and said, You see, if I did not find traces of her all over the house, I should surely die. A year after the death of his wife, Rossetti painted the wonderful Beata Beatrix, portrait of beatrice sitting in a balcony overlooking florence the beautiful eyes filled with ache dream and expectation are closed as if in transport of calm delight an hourglass is at hand and a dove is just dropping a poppy the flower of sleep and death into her open hands of course the picture is a portrait of the dear dead wife and so in all the pictures thereafter painted by dante gabriel for the twenty years that he lived you perceive that while he had various models in them all, he traced resemblances to this first, last, and only passion of his life. In William Sharp's fine little book, A Record and a Study, I find this. As to the personality of Dante Gabriel Rossetti, a great deal has been written since his death, and it is now widely known that he was a man who exercised an almost irresistible charm over those with whom he was brought in contact. His manner could be peculiarly winning, especially when those much younger than himself were and his voice was alike notable for its sonorous beauty and for the magnetic quality that made the ear alert when the speaker was engaged in conversation, recitation, or reading. I have heard him read, some of them over and over again, all the poems in the ballads and sonnets, and especially in such productions as The Cloud Confines, was his voice as stirring as a trumpet note, but where he excelled was in some of the pathetic portions of the Vita Nova, or the terrible and sonorous passages of L'Inferno, when the music of the Italian language found full expression indeed, his conversational powers i am unable adequately to describe for during the four or five years of my intimacy with him he suffered too much to be a brilliant talker but again and again i have seen instances of that marvellous gift that made him at one time a sydney smith in wit and a coleridge in eloquence in appearance he was if anything rather above middle height and especially latterly somewhat stout his forehead was of splendid proportions recalling instantaneously the stratford bust of shakespeare and his grey-blue eyes were clear and piercing and characterized by that rapid, penetrative gaze so noticeable in Emerson. He seemed always to me an unmistakable Englishman, yet the Italian element frequently was recognizable. As far as his own opinion was concerned, he was wholly English. Possessing a thorough knowledge of French and Italian, he was a fortunate appreciator of many great works in their native tongue, and his sympathies in religion, as in literature, were truly Catholic. To meet him even once was to be the better for it ever after. Those who obtained his friendship cannot well say all it meant and means to them, but they know they are not again in the least likely to meet with another, such as Dante Gabriel Rossetti. In Walter Hamilton's book, Aesthetic England, is this bit of most vivid prose. Naturally, the sale of Rossetti's effects attracted a large number of persons to the gloomy, old-fashioned residence in Shane Walk, Chelsea, and many of the articles sold went for prices very far in excess of their intrinsic value, the total sum realized being over 3,000 pounds. But during the sale of the books, on that fine July afternoon, in the dingy study hung round with the lovely but melancholy faces of Proserpine and Pandora, despite the noise of the throng and the witticisms of the auctioneer, a sad feeling of desperation must have crept over many of those who were present at the dispersion of the household goods and gods of that man who so hated the vulgar crowd. Gazing through the open windows, they could see the tall trees wavering their heads in a sorrowful sort of way in the summer breeze, throwing their shifty shadows over the neglected grass-grown paths, Once the haunt of the stately peacocks, whose medieval beauty had such a strange fascination for Rossetti, and whose feathers are now the accepted favors of his apostles and admirers. And so their gaze would wander back again to that mysterious face upon the wall, that face, as some say, the grandest in the world, a lovely one in truth, with its wistful, woeful, passionate eyes, its sweet, sad mouth with full red lips, a face that seemed to say the sad old lines, "'Tis better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all." And then would come the monotonous cry of the auctioneer to disturb the reverie, and call one back to the matter-of-fact world which Dante Gabriel Rossetti, painter and poet, has left forever. Going, going, gone. End of section 16.